Thank you for joining us for this episode of From All Sides, a podcast by Cube Group, where we explore the strategic, organizational, and human sides of the major issues facing public value organizations in the current world, and particularly the current COVID-19 crisis. Our current series focuses on the different ways this global pandemic impacts public service leaders and their organizations. We discuss the ways we can be better prepared to lead Australia as response moves into recovery. More information on each episode is on our website, cubegroup.com.au. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Today is March 24th, 2021, and we're continuing through a period of noting one year since the COVID-19 pandemic dramatically changed all our lives in different ways. This week marks the one-year anniversary of Victoria and New South Wales entering into a shutdown of all non-essential activities to control the spread of the virus. Schools, places of work, non-essential shops were all closed. Remote working and learning began en masse and stay-at-home orders commenced. Levels of government intervention in our lives and activities that were unimaginable prior to the pandemic have now been with us on and off and in one way or another for a year. Recent weeks have also delivered, on the whole, a large vote of confidence in the Australian governments that adopted this new level of intervention. The Western Australian Labor government was returned with a historic margin in the election last week, and pretty much all Australian political leaders enjoy high levels of support. On the whole, compliance with these unprecedented restrictions has been high, and citizens, for the most part, strongly support the leaders that implemented these measures. However, this one-year milestone also marks a year of unprecedented demand on the capability of the public service. The public service has faced the most extraordinary year of disruption and demand for its functions, including profoundly new functions like mandatory quarantine, contract tracing, uh, some old functions but on a new scale, like the level of public health directives and now the rollout of a new vaccine. And of course, many existing functions of government but with extreme levels of innovation, like online schooling, remote service delivery and so many more. All this means that the Australian Public Service has been in an extreme environment for more than a year now, and a chance to reflect on what these changes mean for the role, capability and the experience of public services is more than timely. Our guest today is here to help us do exactly that. Professor Janine O'Flynn is from the Australian New Zealand School of Government. Janine is a Professor of Public Management at ANZOG and at the University of Melbourne. Her teaching and research in public management is focused on reform and public sector relationships, including the interface with external partners of government in the delivery of public value. She will be well known to many public purpose leaders as a teacher in ANZOG's Executive Masters of Public Administration. In September 2020, Professor O'Flynn published an article in the Public Management Review on the big challenges and questions that the COVID-19 pandemic was asking of public administration. That article is available online and we'll put a link up to it on our webpage for this episode. And I'd commend it to listeners. It's a deeply insightful look at the emerging challenge for public servants as it was unfolding, and it is standing the test of time as the impact of the pandemic moves forward. That article, as well as Janine's other reflections on the pandemic and its impact on the public service, are the topic of our conversation today. topic we want to talk about today is starting with an article that you released in uh, September last year. Let's start that conversation by talking about one of perhaps one of your biggest themes in that, which was that Australia, like a lot of other countries, is entering what you described as an era of returning to an era of big government. I suppose to start with how profound a change that move back to big government has been and, and whether you see it as something that's temporary or do you see it as something that might stay with us for a bit longer than that? To me, we've just seen this, this massive expansion both on the spending side of government, which was necessary, but also the expectations about what government is going to do. 
And we've had in Australia, as with many other like nations, several decades now of a, a reduction in the expectations about what government will do, even if we haven't had a reduction in the size and spend of government. So I, I sort of think we've had over time an almost narrowing of our expectations of government and a, an expansion of thinking that the market will solve our problems or that private sector organisations are better at things or community sector organisations are better at, at things and that government isn't really up to scratch. And I've sort of declared this at various points in time, sort of fake news, to be honest, and in different pieces that I've written, there's a, a sense that government can't do things. So I think in, in a way what's happening in COVID, if we just think about Australia, but also some of our close neighbours like New Zealand, is we're seeing a return to really being able to see clearly the public value that government creates. It is without question in sort of every part of what's happening around the world, the sort of catalyst for rapid vaccine has been fuelled by government, not just in the short term, but also the long term, all of that investment in R&D and, and so on, which has allowed private and public organisations and interests to come together at a point in time to do that in a way that we thought was undoable, unthinkable very shortly ago to be able to develop a vaccine and start rolling it out and to see even some of the countries who have had terrible sort of experiences during COVID roll out that in logistical way, which is just mind-boggling. The US seems to be doing an extraordinary job of that in the UK. I think this is a time when we're sort of going to be confronting the question of what is the role of government? What do we expect government to do? It's also fueling this massive of trusting government. You mentioned that you looked at other countries' responses as well as Australia. I know COVID, it's hard to remember this now, but the COVID experience in Australia came on the back of a, a really awful bushfire summer just shortly that had our Prime Minister with an unfortunately timed holiday. I always wondered whether part of the eagerness of politicians to be out in front of COVID-19 was and they certainly were out in front of it, whether that was partly a reaction to the experience of the bushfires. But was that a, you mentioned other countries, was that a universal experience that governments were very keen to be out in front of this and whatever the, I guess, political persuasion of a government at the time, there was an expectation from the public that this is what government's for and they need to solve this problem. There's two, two parts to answering that. One is the expectations was certainly almost universal and you can see some of the data on that, particularly from organisations like the Edelman Trust who look across nations around the world and, and compare them and they have certainly shown, I think, pretty convincingly in their work that there was a certainly a very high expectation from the public around the world that government would be out the front on this. It would be solving this problem somehow. Now, how governments responded to that and has been pretty variable around the world, and there's some really interesting research which has looked at that. Now, one of the problems as researchers we have is a really short time frame, and so there's a fair bit of research on the run, which doesn't mean it's not credible. It just means that we have to be thinking about longitudinally what that means. So there has been some really interesting research which has tried to tie sort of populist governments with COVID outcomes and certainly some of the early data which was trying to bring those things together had shown that countries that where governments had been elected on sort of populist platforms which also tended to be disparaging of experts have tended to have bad outcomes in the initial stages of COVID. Now, in a sense, that makes sense to people, that, that narrative, but 
the data is bearing that out in some ways. And we saw that, for example, in the United States under President Trump, we've seen it in the UK um, and also in Brazil where we've had catastrophic sorts of experiences with the early stages and the second and third waves of COVID. And so there's this mismatch in some of those countries between the expectations of the public and where the government's delivered on them. The switch in the United States to a new administration, big part of the performance of that new administration is really trying to, to show the public that it is competent in charge. I see it through things like President Biden's commitment to you know a certain number of vaccinations by a certain time. He's setting really clear goals and he's massively exceeding them and probably by design. <laughs> but you know, you're seeing an incredible logistical effort now marshaled around vaccination. Um, in Australia, I think you're right. We had we had fires, flood and COVID. People who are more religious than me might see a pattern in that sort of sequence of things. But there was a, a massive expectation that government needed to be out front, that they needed to be seen to be doing things and that we really needed very strong leadership. And in the early phases, I think, of the COVID response, we really saw that in, from different leaders in different jurisdictions and they've all had their own style. I think we saw the, the Commonwealth really attempting to, to coordinate, to act as an institutional leader in this space and the creation of things like National Cabinet was a really interesting uh, institutional innovation is one way we might think about that. Now, it's long-term sustainability is up for grabs and and why why we had to move away from COAG, the Council of Australian Governments, towards that. What was wrong with COAG? That's still to be really hotly debated as well. You mentioned too, in a time of huge expectations, growing expectations on government, it also seems like governments for the most part have lived up, at least in Australia, to those expectations, or at least the level of public support in government has been pretty strong over that period. Do you want to talk a bit about how you've seen that play out and what you think is driving that, probably alongside what is by international standards has been, a, we'd have to say, a very good performance by our governments. But do you want to talk a bit more about the trust factor and what you've seen there? The trust factor is really interesting because we've had this sort of lull in trust and particularly in many of the wealthy sort of Western nations, we've seen an erosion of trust over time. Was certainly a, a pattern towards that. And it's not unusual in crisis to get a leap in trust. As people who spend their entire academic careers studying the relationship between trust and governments, I certainly don't want to step on their, their toes. They're the experts on that. But what we can see certainly during COVID has been a massive leap in trust in institutions and particularly in government. And certainly the latest data that came from the Edelman Barometer, which I think was in February, the Australian government is an all-time high in terms of trust. And this is remarkable, actually, because even though we've had an extraordinarily successful comparative experience with COVID, we have also had issues. Some people talk about the trust bubble. What will it, you know, will it pop or burst and all of that will be over? But to me, I've certainly seen this sort of positive trust spiral in a way, and we can, can think about where governments have been able to act decisively, where they've been shown to be largely uh, competent, then that's driving sort of an upward sense of trust. And that trust has allowed them to do things that they might not normally be able to do. And certainly in Victoria, 
uh, where I am, we saw an extraordinary sort of response from government, which was required and which was enacted. And that really has relied on getting citizens in this jurisdiction and, and in many others to comply with pretty radical restrictions on their day-to-day life over a sustained period of time. As you know, we're not talking about a week or two weeks. In, in Melbourne, you know, it's very severe lockdown for months. And to hold that high level of compliance and, in a sense, to ask people to think beyond themselves for a long period of time and commit to some collective response was an extraordinary success in some ways um, in Victoria. It's become such a big part of our life that we even, as how quickly it's come, it's even amazing to remember how radical it is. You, you ask any of us 13, 14 months ago whether something like what we experienced would be possible, we probably all would have guessed no. Looking back at the experience, do you have observations about what it was? There was obviously, a, you mentioned a sort of natural bubble of, I think I heard phrases like rally around the flag or whatever it is during a time of crisis yeah. and that's part of it. What are some other things that you think grew that level of trust? I'm thinking of particularly you mentioned populist governments and thankfully we probably not one of those and particularly we saw a shoulder-to-shoulder sort of hand-in-glove relationship between politicians and genuine um, expert uh, medical advisors which would be part of it as well. Are there other factors you think that are, are sort of lessons in that of what grew that trust or what drove that level of support from citizens? I mean, you mentioned one which I think has been extraordinarily important, which is the valuing of expertise. We can see incredible comparisons between jurisdictions. I mean, I don't want to talk about the United States forever, but in a public sector sense, there's a group of countries that we often compare ourselves to, Canada, New Zealand, the United States, and the UK are the obvious ones in a sense of this club, and we borrow a lot from each other, actually. And so it's a natural a natural sort of comparison, but to me, the the sort of reliance on expertise and really showcasing that in a sense. So in Victoria, you know, it was just extraordinary to see day after day after day the Premier come out with Brett Sutton and for them to stand next to each other and to talk about what had to be done and why, and it was very clear. Um, and it's happening in other jurisdictions as well, so I don't want to discount that in any way. But to see them really stand together, I think the symbolism of that, I do it every day, was extraordinary. And to really say this is what we have to do and why we have to do it. Now, that's not to say that, and I'm sure both of them will reflect on that time and identify things they might have done differently, mistakes that were made and, and so on. But to do that in a very collaborative way and in a very symbolic way daily was extraordinary. And so I think that gave a lot of people a level of comfort that we weren't seeing decisions that were being made just on political terms or being made by people who had no idea about the repercussions of that. But there was a very strong expert basis to that really helped help people. I think the, the case in Victoria was that we actually had a serious crisis. The rest of the jurisdictions in Australia also had different levels. But when you look at the data, most of the cases and most of the deaths were concentrated in Victoria. So there was a real sense of fear in the community that people would become ill, they would die, they would spread this unknown virus, uh, who knew what the repercussions of that would be. And some of the stories that came out of, for example, aged care facilities were just horrific to be able to watch them and not weep at the, the terrible human aspects of many people who were ill, who never got to see 
their loved ones, elderly people who were literally starving in facilities was just catastrophic. And I think all of that together really galvanised the large proportion of the population, not everybody, but a large enough proportion of the population that you get this social pressure, you know, good or bad, people start monitoring each other. And the, the only thing that really reminds me of that in my own recent history was really when we had massive water restrictions. I remember at various points everyone was very proud to put their little timer in their shower and, you know, to tell people off the, across the street because they were watering their driveway and so on. And so we started to see a real collective effort around around that. And to me, that's, you know, when I think about what are analogous cases, that's one that sort of sticks in my mind. We, we were able to get people to adjust at a very micro level their behaviour in pursuit of a much bigger outcome and, in, and a collective sort of public value good in many ways. You mentioned a, a little while ago that this sharp rise in government responsibility and power and, and the sort of a big government emergence sort of bucks the trend of recent history. How well prepared do you think Australian governments were for that sharp rise in what's being demanded of them? Yeah, this is a really difficult question. And in some ways, we make a sort of assessment of that, I think, on both the great successes that we've had and also some of the catastrophic failures. So it's it's a challenging one to make a blanket sort of statement. I've been discussing with some of my colleagues, I, I did a a study with a group of academic colleagues several years ago looking at pandemic preparedness when the pandemic finally sort of arrived, which was always predicted. So in many ways, it wasn't a crisis that we shouldn't have expected. So it's definitely the World Health Organization's been really focused for, for many years on the idea that we would have a global pandemic like this and we needed to be prepared. And it's just for many countries, they just sort of left that to the side. That was a bit difficult to, to deal with. The one thing that struck me really on in, in COVID was realising that we hadn't had a sort of practice pandemic exercise, which helps us to make sure that we are logistically prepared. We haven't had one since the invention of the iPhone. Now, once you start to think about how our day-to-day -day lives have changed since we all got a smartphone in our pocket, the idea that we hadn't sort of stress-tested responses when everybody has that technology to me is extraordinary and it would have given us a whole lot of set of tools in the toolbox in a way. So a lot of things happened at very fast pace and in the short term were seen as great innovations and as different ways of doing things. And I think the hotel quarantine system was one of those. It was a way to say, we've got this massive response that we need, let's come together. How can we ensure that people can come back? to Australia. We're locking the borders, but people need to come home. And certainly in the short term, many people saw that as an, as an example of great innovation of working with the private sector to be able to create those capabilities using hotels that were sitting empty. It was seen as a really great example. But over time, as we've had the inquiry into hotel quarantine, we've also seen a whole range of sort of systemic issues that have been identified in there that will give us questions to ask about sort of the capacity of government, how we think about accountability, and this trade-off between what do we do in the short term in response versus what might be some of the longer-term impacts of that. Certainly, we needed speed in some areas, and that has led to some missteps. There's no question about that. And I think 
that we're going to spend a very long time looking at those as, as sort of academics, as commentators on what happens in the public service, but public service itself. I think we'll have a lot of self-reflection to come from some of the things that haven't worked. We've also had great success stories. And a couple that I, I've just been using in my class, actually, in the last couple of weeks have been in Aboriginal communities in Australia, particularly in Victoria, which I know quite well, but across the country. We've seen extraordinary health outcomes in those communities because we've had community-led responses. We've used local expertise and knowledge and we've allowed communities to design approaches that are fit for purpose for their place. When you look at the data on infections and deaths in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, they're virtually zero. And there's a reason for that. And part of, to me, what's interesting is how much of that lesson learning can we embed into government to show that there are different ways of doing things. And I think that will help us to fuel potentially a revolution in the way that we might do some of those services, which gives government more capacity. I mean, one of the big things that I talk about in that article is really this issue of capacity. Has it eroded over time? Where have we lost the ability to respond? And I think to me, that's one of the big things that emerges out of COVID. What capacities that we didn't realise we needed were eroded to the point where they were non-existent or dysfunctional. And we've been sort of operating with a, a veneer of effective government, but when we needed it in some areas, it wasn't there. And that pattern is playing out across many parts of the world, not just um, in Australia. I remember one of the really early positives that people were, were really positive about, well, there were probably two elements. One was that collaboration, which you touched on earlier, the National Cabinet, but also collaboration across different parts of government, different um, within state governments were setting themselves up different ways, as well as a sort of getting it done attitude of, you know, problems that the government department that's that have been talking about enabling remote working for all its staff for years and all of a sudden it had it done overnight. I guess the shine came off that a little bit through the challenges in Victoria, but do you still see that as something that will come out of this as a positive or do you think some of those more recent challenges have sort of taken the shine off that. Yeah, I mean, there's some extraordinary stories, I think, that should be told about both the successes of how government itself operates and has changed or experimented with different operating models. And that's something that we really need to examine in great detail for a couple of reasons. One is that there has been some failures in that area, so we need to learn why they failed and does that mean that they are off the drawing board? I think that would be extremely short-sighted. So one of the examples of that in Victoria was the creation of a range of missions and using this approach, which is well, we've got a, a series of missions during the crisis and we're going to reconfigure government around the missions and we'll appoint leaders of each of those missions. And many of them may very well have worked, but some of them did not. And so do we throw out that sort of approach to government? Now, governments around the world are starting to experiment about with that and think about it. And some of that work's being led by what I call a sort of rock star academic, Mariana Mazzucato, who talks a lot about the value of government and retelling sort of the public value story of government. She's just released a book called Moonshoots, which is really, you know, like if we could get someone, man on the moon, why can't we solve some of these problems? And it's an old old story in many ways, but she's sort of saying what we need to do is create these sort of moonshot systems in government and we need to really focus on purpose and getting things done and, and rally all of our resources around those areas. Now, we did experiment with that in Victoria 
And I don't think we know whether it worked or not yet. My fear is that looking at something like hotel quarantine, where we saw a lot of questions raised around accountability and responsibility and decision-making and, and so on, that experiment will just will end. And we'll say that model didn't work, it's gone. And it can be an extremely powerful break on innovation, actually. And I've seen that in other research I've done and spend a lot of time looking at the creation of Indigenous coordination centres across Australia several years ago. And I remember someone saying to me during that when we were doing field work and, and data collection that a senior person said, well, the first time we had to front up to Senate estimates and we were asked why we hadn't solved this intractable problem in a year using this new model, we knew it was over because we could never, never be able to deliver on that promise. So I worry a little bit that some of the failings and we were bound to have them in a crisis of this scale and scope um, and fast-moving global crisis, which has hit on every aspect of people's lives, social and economic and political, in a range of ways, that we were going to make mistakes and we were going to fail at some things. It was just absolutely predictable. Now, what they would be, we don't know. But to write off different ways of doing, I think, would be really problematic. Many people often ask me, why can't we take lessons from crisis, um, particularly when people are interested in collaboration? Why can we collaborate so well during a, you know, bushfires or floods? And why can't we take that into our business as usual? And there's many reasons for that. But we've had now a prolonged crisis, a year plus. It's going to still be with us for a while. And it's almost becoming business as usual, isn't it? I mean, the working from home thing has showed us that that people can be highly functional and productive without having to be sitting in, in the line of sight of their boss. I mean, we monitor people in other ways now, but I think we've shown that that experiment, the working from home, working remotely distributed models of, of working in many areas is perfectly fine and it's been productive, although it can lead, and perhaps we'll talk about later, to some negative sort of outcomes as well. I think that there's a lot for us to take from this in how we might reimagine how we do government. We've got an extraordinary opportunity. We've shown that government is an extraordinary catalyst of value creation. We've done everything from, you know, support industries to save lives. I don't really like using that word, but, you know, like entire educational systems moving to remote delivery of education across every level of learning and just across all of these sort of areas of government, we've seen this incredible action. So I hope we don't lose that and we need to be able to tell sort of stories of success alongside of those ones of where we have had failures. We need to accept that and we need to learn from those as well. That's really well said. And as a cross-promotion, there's now close to a, a dozen or more of these podcasts that have had conversations with incredibly successful public service innovation. So there are plenty of listening for, for listeners. Look, the other big theme of your paper, the COVID-19 pandemic is exacerbating sort of underlying vulnerabilities, um, weaknesses, disadvantages in our community. Do you want to talk a bit about probably the major themes you're you're seeing there and, and maybe sticking with our theme of what does this mean for government? I remember right at the start of the pandemic, we had this sort of narrative, which was, was a sort of public health safety narrative really around the world, which was, you know, COVID doesn't discriminate anyone can get it and so on. And in fact, what we've seen is COVID absolutely discriminates so that those people and communities who have been already disadvantaged and worse off are more worse off. 
millions of people around the world have now moved into further into poverty. We're starting to see data that's showing that many of the development goals are moving backwards and we're going to lose a lot of progress that we had. If we look at the, you know, sort of macro story of the world, uh, once you start to dig into that, you can see there's really terrible outcomes for particular communities. So in the United States, for example, um, or in the UK, there's there's very clear sort of differences on a race basis. There's differences for people who are living with disabilities who have been worse off from COVID both economically and also, you know, they've been some of the first to lose out in the labour market, for example, and also in terms of the exacerbation of some of those issues. The disadvantage story is that it has meant that many people are more disadvantaged than they were before. We're also going to see, if we just think about Australia, we're going to actually see a lot of people pretty soon coming off of what has been very generous government support to keep people attached to the workplace through JobKeeper. And I think we're going to see a a wave of more disadvantage uh, coming. And I'm not, clearly I'm not the only person sort of saying saying that. But what does it mean for government? It means many things. One is that, you know, because we've had COVID and people haven't been able to, they've been sort of essentially up at, at home, we're going to have a massive queue of demand for government across a whole range of of areas, whether that's in terms of people being able to start re-accessing things like elective surgery, always problematic in in Australia. We've never solved the elective surgery waiting list problem yet that I know of, and now we've got a backlog. But along the way, there's been sort of the sounding of alarms about people not getting tested for, you know, cancer screening, a whole range of things. So we can expect, I think, to see a, a range of problems And, of course, we've got great potential, I think, for an almost explosion in issues around family violence, mental health issues, because people have, in many cases, been contained in physical spaces in a way that that they may not have wanted to be and haven't been able to leave. So all of that, I think, is bubbling. We've seen the expansion of, of family violence and reporting of that. And so all of that is sort of bubbling up. I think in that area, things are going to get a lot worse. And who knows, in a sense, what the long-term sort of mental health and psychological impact is going to be for many people of being socially distanced, of being away from others, whether that's young people who have missed out on the several sort of almost rites of passage. Like I look at young people now who, you know, didn't get to celebrate finishing high school or they've transitioned into university study and they've never set foot on campus. That is extraordinary. As an educator, you know, I spent so much of my life on the university campus. The idea that, you know, the undergrads didn't come last year is just extraordinary. And all of those things are really important social rites of passage for people. So where that takes us, I'm I'm not sure, but for me, in terms of how we think about those ideas in our field of research is really important. They've often been sitting on the sidelines, many great people doing excellent research and advocacy in these areas, but I think it's time for them to come centre stage. And I sort of made that made that case in the paper that these ideas about social justice and equity need to come back into the centre of the field, which used to deal with them a lot, but has really sort of marginalised them over time and and be much more interested in in things like the mechanisms of government, how we go about doing it, rather than some of these more difficult moral 
and social questions, I think. Those are really well made points. And, and the thought for me too is just how long those issues will be with us. The COVID's probably got some more time with us before we're truly done of it, but hopefully the vaccine will move relatively quickly on that. Some of these impacts you're talking about are they're multi-year, even impacting significant generations. Yeah. Let's come back to the public service. I know that's been a, a theme of yours, and I wonder if we could talk a bit about the experience of public servants. You work closely with public servants through ANZOG and through others. Why don't you tell us a bit about what you've observed from the outside as a, as a close friend of the public service, the experience of public servants is like, and and probably your thoughts about them going to this next period of what would very well be just as busy as the last year has been? There's a few points to make on this. And one is that the ability for government to deliver to the Australian people in the way that has over the last year relies on the effort of people working within those organisations. For anyone who thinks, who holds on to this extremely outdated and very weird, in my, my view, idea that the public servants are a bunch of lazy bureaucrats who don't do anything. Thank them for saving us. You know, to be honest, to be frank, the efforts of people across all levels of government, from local government through, and also organisations that they work with, community sector organisations, private sector organisations who have come together to deal with this has been extraordinary. There is no question that the overwhelming experience here has been for effort levels that are unsustainable, humanly unsustainable. This happened across many organisations. So they've been in crisis mode now for a very long time. I suspect, and certainly, I don't even suspect, I think I know, I can say it quite clearly and listeners won't be surprised that we're going to deal with a wave of sort of burnout. And if, I mean, we already are, I think, dealing with major sort of HR issues within organisations because of that sustained level of effort, but also because just the scale and scope of what's happened. For example, imagine that you're a person who was involved in making some of those decisions or has worked in an area where we've seen failure. The personal cost of that to people, I think, is going to be very high. And that's been played out in the Victorian case of hotel quarantine, for example, very publicly. So there's a sort of recognition that has to be given to that extraordinary effort, but it is absolutely unsustainable in a human sense. We physically and psychologically cannot work at that level of sort of being switched on and adrenaline and so on for that period of time. You know, psychologists will tell you that there's a cost to that. We start to make poor decisions. We get cognitive overload. You know, we burn, literally burn out. And the ability for people to manage and try and balance their life and their work when their work is now in their home, their dining table, or in the, you know, like me in a in the sort of lost space of the roof, we haven't had a separation. And so there's this never-ending bleeding of work and, and life together. I mean, one of the downsides I mentioned before, there's some downsides to that, that sort of dispersed and remote learning working model, sorry, you don't switch off. If you went to an office, there's something about you get to the office, so whether it's some long commute or it's around the corner, there's something about then the preparing for that. You go in, you do your day's work, uh, you exit, you decompress, and, and hopefully you move into another phase of what you're doing in, in your life when you get home or go out and, and do whatever you want. Those boundaries have been dissolved, and I think that we're really going to see the effects of that for some time to come. People have put in extraordinary effort, but the ability for government to act has really been on the back of that extraordinary commitment 
that public servants have to the communities that they serve. You know, we have a a sort of healthy sport in Australia of bureaucrat bashing. If anything, this has to show that people are driven by that public purpose. They're there for a reason and they've given everything in many cases for a very long period of time. And at some stage, we have to stop and acknowledge that. Our guest today has been Professor Janine O'Flynn from ANZOG. Janine, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Thanks for having me.